0: Welcome to Our Journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union.
1: Welcome to A More Perfect Union. I'm Nick Remesong, along with my co-host, Chris Wolf. And joining us this week from our radio roundtable of regulars, we have higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones. And from Beacon Hill, our representative, Jeff Roy. And as always, with us, our station manager, Peter J. Hey. How's everything? Today, I've opted to be spiffy. Spiffy's always good in my book. And I've got some. I've got some spiffy quotes to to kick things off here today to get us started. Excellent. I've Is got... that spiffy or pithy quotes? No, well, sp- both. <laughs> they are pithy. I mean, they can short. be both. They're can be both. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to belabor you with these. I think they'll sell themselves. The first one: a lie told once remains a lie, but a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. And the second: think of the press as a great keyboard on which one can play anybody recognize those
0: first one yeah second one is new to me both
1: of them both of them from one source the great Gallatier of Berlin back in the uh back uh, in the uh. 30s and 40s Mr Joseph Goebbels and as a segue into our show today I just want to mention another incident I saw that's uh reviewing the tape of the cnn town hall with mr trump i noticed that early on in the broadcast he pulled out a sheaf of papers from his coat and started referring to statements he claimed to have made that the news media had supposedly suppressed all of his information they'd suppressed these marvelous uh sentiments he put out there about the uh, january 6th incident and uh-huh. about the electri- election theft but uh it just reminded me of a moment, and I'm uh, in a heartbeat, I was uh, transported back to uh, Wheeling, West Virginia in February of 1950. Another politician was waving papers that day and declared he had a list of 205 names given to the Secretary of State of known communists within the State Department. Nobody ever saw those papers. Nobody ever saw that list. The list was whittled down from 205 to 78 and finally down to 57. I have it right here. He has I, it. I wish the <laughs> listeners at home could
2: see this, but I'm waving a piece of paper. It ended up at the state house in Boston.
1: There you go, oh. in the archives, <laughs> lost forever almost. But uh, when uh. he did wave the papers, it looked like he had a, you know, a, a, a printed copy of a news story of some sort. Anyway, I don't think we'll see those papers, but it kind of set the tone that CNN basically gave a no-holds-barred platform to Mr. Trump, a live forum that was a, a, a crowd that was obviously packed. It was stacked with uh, Trump supporters and MAGA supporters. So what's everybody got to say about that? Do you, do you come away with the same impressions as I did, or do you have something else you saw?
0: There are a handful of ways that that went wrong, so, so wrong. Uh, number one, CNN should never have allowed the audience to be packed. Number two, and this is something i think: as as talented and as brilliant as Caitlin is, she should have had a partner in crime working with her. Mm-hmm. Someone like a John King who would have intimidated Trump. Uh, and if Caitlin and John King had been working together as co-hosts on that program, uh, while Caitlin certainly did her very best to put him in line the fact that he could be so misogynistic with respect to who she was and just steamroll her but he couldn't steamroll a John King that wasn't going to happen even though he's a great Dorchester boy he's really bright and he knows the political scene in such a way that he would have taken Trump down to size he could have gone toe to toe along with caitlin that way so they needed reinforcements they really needed to to have plenty of backup uh, and then finally the third thing if Trump was going to refuse to stay in the right lane, I would have from on high given both of them to permission to say, and we won't be right back right after this. Yeah. <laughs> and and just and just pull the plug on it about 60 seconds in. Mm-hmm.
3: I am convinced that this political season, we're never, that the media should treat Trump as if they are running a, uh, uh, a truth or consequences game show so that when he gets interviewed uh, that there's a panel sitting somewhere off to the side. And when he makes a statement that there's either a gong or a buzzer that says, eh. Oh yeah, that's true. You know, the buzzer is, eh. right. now, you know, well, all, then- all
0: you have to do is just, turn the buzzer on and leave it on. That's mm-hmm. all you have to do.
3: <laughs> it would come across that way, wouldn't it? Yeah, really. Uh, but I, I have think... to
2: confess uh, my uh, my teammates here today that uh, I could not bring myself to tune into to that, uh, that event. I've only read about it and heard about it and seen snippets from it. And Same. that was enough for me. But I tell you, um, my prescription for any future interview with him, is that you uh, give the uh, moderator or questioner or interviewer a remote control that mm-hmm. turns his microphone off. Yep. Uh, so, okay, you've answered the question. Uh, let's move on to the next topic and then just shut the microphone off. So that that's, that's the only way I would say you can
0: fairly interview uh, that guy. And when you turn the microphone off, it also ought to fire off his dog collar. <laughs> I like that. Oh, you know, heavens. Yeah. <laughs> The whole thing was a fraud. (laughs) (laughs) The election was stolen.
1: (laughs) It was just the, the snippets that I watched. I did not. I couldn't watch it live. I had to go back and review once it had been settled in and I'd read some other things. But this snippets and it just everything he said reinforced the feelings I had about him. I thought there might be something new, but no, there was nothing new. It was just the the limited vocabulary. He's just he just is not come across as a very bright nor eloquent person.
2: But people still love him. That's what I, is so confusing. Help me through this. I Be my analyst. Today. Well, I can
0: tell you exactly why. Please. You, and, and this is... Alright, so let me put on my own political consultant hat. And yes, I have done this as a film director in the past and so on and a media specialist. I've worked with many candidates. And my takeaway, if I was the guy in the room talking about Okay, where do we go from here? Let's assume for the moment that we are in the room with Ron DeSantis, and I am talking to Ronnie, Ronnie, watch my lips. I have advice. Here's what you need to know. Ron, you are not competing against a politician, but you are one. You're busy making these arguments, these cultural positions, trying to shore it up with whatever logic you can muster, and you come across as angry, petulant, and quite frankly, not very warm. So that's something you got to work on. But your opponent, on the other hand, angry though he be, he is angry on behalf of the people. And the most important thing I can tell you is he's not a politician. He's a celebrity. And that means that 15% of the Republican populace are in love with him only because he's a celebrity and they do not care about the politics. They are basking in the glow of a celebrity who they see as a very wealthy man who represents something that they would aspire to by hook or by crook. And therefore, there is no logic in play here. The 15% of the party that he owns, the MAGA Republicans, are never going to go away. And the 15% of the party that he owns cripples the rest of the Republican Party permanently. It's more until than 15%. He does go percent, more than 15% love him. It, well, How do you it is, but I'm others? talking about the hardcore you know, th- we know about never-Trumpers. Mm-hmm. There are always Trumpers. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: I just need to know h- how he accomplishes 40% of people thinking that he's appropriate for public office. Help me understand that. Be my analyst. I, I-, I need you today.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, there are others out there that go along for the ride because of the fact that they maybe believe in some of his policies. They think he did good things, call it what you will. But I'm talking about the hardcore core, core. Um, and and they have great influence over a number of other people, and so there's no logic here. There is absolutely no logic in any of this. That's and,
1: that's pretty much the key. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and DeSantis and all the others are going to try to make logical arguments against him, and they're going to fail. They're going to fail miserably. And then there's his simple tactic: who's the leader amongst my enemies? Kill that leader. When the leadership changes, kill the next one. And that's what he did the first time when he ran for office. There were 17 Republicans on stage, and one by one, he picked them all off.
3: You know, I I also have a uh, an addition to that analysis, which is that he has allowed politics to become not just hyperbolic, but lying hyperbolic. Right. When a Kevin McCarthy can stand there, and say something like the failed policies of joe biden and people buy into that then the question becomes at what point when you're working for what i would characterize as the betterment of the community and the betterment of the country and the betterment of individuals at what point are you allowed to get away with saying well those are failed policies when you are proposing trying to use the debt limit for example as a uh as a knife but you're only going to allow one aspect of what could be solution to be put on the table and here's what i mean by that mccarthy keeps talking about they want to cut spending but immediately when they first want to enter into conversation with biden say oh but Raising revenues is off the table. Mm. I, you know, I don't understand how it is that we have allowed these things without any challenge. And I'm not even hearing challenges from the Democratic Party saying, oh, no, revenues are still on, you know, raising revenues are still on the table. So if so, maybe then we're just going to have to agree to disagree as we sit down and try to negotiate. But it's not just about cutting spending because we also have on the Republican side this love of letting tax breaks go to those who either don't need them uh, or don't deserve them. Yeah. I do, so I do want me to, so so to, let me to put to myself I think in the same I, category as uh, Jeff. Help well, me, guys. <laughs> I think we I might can, have
1: someone who's come in here, just joined us, who might be able to help us with that. Dr. Natalie Alinos, Harvard's uh, University's direct executive director for health and human rights, and I know you've got a graduation to get to. So I want to give you a chance to join in here and and help us understand uh, young Donald Trump.
4: Good morning, Nick. Good morning, everyone. And sorry I was late. Um, not at all. And I, I, I plan to go a little later to graduation. So don't worry. It's uh, ah, good. I'll stay with you a little bit longer. You want me to try and, and give you insights on a young Donald Trump? I, a young
1: I, and old and, and the middle aged, however, businesses. whatever uh, stage in his life you wish to uh, inject <laughs> your upon.
4: <laughs> you know what? I think for now I will listen a little more before I, I inject because I do not think I would be very polite. So I'm. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to pass. Well, then that's what you missed. Oh, no.
1: There's been been a lot of politeness with regard to that topic so far. I you you, need to to be be piling on.
5: I'll make make a point. Dr. Mike, I think in your preface to your last remarks, you said uh, that when you're working for the betterment of the community and the country and the public as a whole, and I think that's your mistake, Uh, I don't think that a lot of um, people Hmm. in office or seeking office now are doing that they're in it for themselves and they're in it for the benefit of the people who can help their political fortunes principally ejection, their their ejection. donors
1: yeah, yeah. well with, present company with, accepted with present company, company accepted and some
5: some <laughs> gallant and noble exceptions shocker shocker I'm again so obviously it's not a majority but um i think if you take that assumption away that the people are like jeff working for the betterment of their communities and the betterment of society as a whole then i think you have a better understanding of of what's happening um
3: I think they're, your point as they're well, milking
5: maybe. and manipulating you know whatever concerns people have to try and perpetuate their own grasp on power and to assist the people who are helping them which is their donors and and it's you know I hope don't want to keep bringing things back to the Supreme Court, but Citizens United and those kinds of decisions that enabled huge, mm. obscene amounts of money to get into politics, mm. unfettered by any constraints and, and common sense, that um, that's that's the result.
4: Chris, I, I agree with you in many ways. And although Jeff has called me a cynic before on this show, when I talked about the influence of of politics, because there are people like Jeff who, you know, but it does skew this system of, you know, uh, relying on wealthy donors skews the way that politicians and candidates spend their time. They spend their time talking to very wealthy donors most of the time. And I'm talking about the big races, Jeff, not just the, you know, the local school committee race. I didn't have to do that. But at the national level, when you can have a super PAC and, you know, then. You really, really are spending your time not listening to communities and trying to, you know, as, as Michael said, serve the needs of those who are already benefiting from yeah. our inequitable system. And so fundamentally, if we want to change that, if we want to be uh serving everyone, including and especially, I would say, the poorer members, those who have been left behind, then our political fundraising, like the entire funding of, of politics has to be put to question so that we can have candidates who don't come from billions that don't have those connections, but have lived experience to, you know, step forward. And we do have the exceptions. You know, I'm not saying it's not a blanket statement, but President Trump, I mean, he he exemplifies what, you know, it's the the millions or the image of millions. It's the sort of drama. It's the you know, he is not representing someone who has spent his career. Trying to, to serve, right? To serve people. He mm-hmm. has been trying to benefit to build his name, to put, you know, hotels with big signs. So I am disillusioned that this is what political kind of leadership looks like right now um, in this country. And I and I hope versus President Biden, who I think did, you know, he is a public servant for life. And maybe there's a an interim. Maybe it is finding new voices, new people, a more diverse group. But I, I think, Chris, you're right that given super PACs and all the money that flows into politics, it's really, really difficult to prioritize what we should be prioritizing. But Jeff, tell me, tell me that I'm wrong in my uh, cynicism.
2: I'm not going to debate you on what's happening at the federal level. Um, I, I see it day in and day out. And you know, keep in mind that um, in Massachusetts, folks who uh, are in elected office are, are limited to $200 annually from a lobbyist. So, uh, and on the federal level, I, I believe the limits are in the order of $4,300, $4,300. So the role of influence is a, a, on a much bigger scale at the federal level. You know, any any politician who's going to sell themselves for $200 ought to be re-examining their, uh, their future. <laughs> But you know it is a definitely a a piece that's out there, and uh, we should be mindful of it. But you know I, I I try to stay above above that. And you know it is easier when you know the maximum donation is two hundred bucks. I have to say it's it's easy not to fall in that trap. How I would be you know if I was you know catering to forty three hundred dollar donors. I you know I can't sit here and say. Uh, how I would be. Um, but I did have an opportunity. I almost jumped into that baseball team race in uh, what was it, 2018, uh, where there were nine
3: people? (laughs)
4: 2020, 2020. 2020.
3: 2020, I
4: would have, I would have maybe not jumped in had you been running.
3: Ah. (laughs) I think there probably would have been a different outcome if Jeff had been running, but then that's, that's my own personal. Uh, sort of perspective about that. But then let's not forget, it's really not about the individual lobbyist or the individual donor directly to the politician. It really is the dark money packs and the ability of those dark money packs to put in millions of dollars into a campaign. Technically, it's supposed to be without any kind of direction from the politician. And that's where I think, as a country, we're we're really in trouble. But let's get to the issue of what the politicians today are able to get away with when it comes to working for the people, telling the truth. And uh, let me uh, bring up uh, another one of the sort of Trump lights, uh, Ron DeSantis. Last week, or uh, actually, it was. Uh, this week, the NAACP put out a travel warning for blacks who go into Florida. And I mean, these are things that are highly unusual in today's world, but were very typical day to day kinds of events back in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, especially during the height of the Jim Crow laws into the sixties in Florida. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that is just as concerning. And then the idea that, uh, for example, I was just with my daughter last week in Los Angeles, California, and her association, the California teachers association are making plans to go to the national education association representative assembly an assembly which brings together typically about 6 to 10,000 teachers from all over the country and they're going to Orlando, Florida. Well, at the meeting that my uh that I was attending uh observing my daughter, there were a lot of trans and gay uh folks who said that they are not going uh, for obvious reasons to Orlando. But then there were also uh, a group of folks. Now, this may come of some interest to both Uh, My friends here, as well as our listeners, there were a number of women who were pregnant saying they are not going to Florida as well. Because if any complication happens while they're there, uh, they want to get immediate care and not be accused of either in the midst of either trying to have an abortion or trying to harm their baby in any way and these were women who were very sincere and i think that, that that also is a concern when we look at politicians uh south carolina just yesterday or day before passed a six week uh abortion ban over the objection of women in the legislature and the ultimate result was that only men voted <laughs> only men let me repeat that again only men in this particular body, in the Senate, voted for this particular piece of legislation. So, I, you know, when we look at politicians, I mean, Trump only exemplifies, I think, the new language, which is just say anything you want to say. You can lie and you can work against the public interest and then lie to the public right to their face, saying, oh, but this is for your benefit, your reactions.
4: I'm going to jump in just, Michael, to to this point around, you know, women feeling safe. And I have now heard it in several settings that like older women are advising young women of reproductive age to leave these states. And obviously, a small number of women can do that. You have to have the privilege of like, well, to relocate. But it is shocking to me that we are having these conversations, basically saying that it's unsafe to be of reproductive age in so many states now. It's unsafe. Whether or not you want a child, because as you said, Michael, you might have a complication and it may require to terminate the pregnancy in order to save your life. And doctors are going to hesitate. And, you know, seconds of hesitation can be life threatening in a situation of an emergency. So I am horrified uh, that we are having these conversations. I did not realize that only men had voted. So I am horrified. And, you know, to me, it means that we need to ensure that we do have, you know, women in our politics and not that all women will vote a certain way. But in this case, it sounds like they would because they know that six weeks, many, many, many of us do not track our menstrual cycles to the day. It's very easy to not know that you are pregnant uh, until about eight weeks when you're like, hey, it feels like it's been longer than, you know, four or five weeks. But, you know, so you wouldn't even know in time to, to do something about it. And all of us have experienced that. And and so kind of that lived experience is relevant. And so I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, when you reach these extremes, even people who agree politically that, you know, there should be some sort of date, they would never have picked a six week date, which is literally, you know, uh, can can be missed. And similarly, you know, what does that mean about other forms of lived experience? And Michael Uh, You know, I I point to you because of the lived experience you've shared around, you know, just growing up in the U.S. when you weren't allowed, you know, like your family vacations, you know, the stories that you have shared and recognizing what it means to be a black American, what it means to be uh, an immigrant, what it means to be a religious minority. And so, yeah, I mean, our politics are are in a place right now, you know, polarized. There are divisions across all of these so any identity you know trans uh as you mentioned um individuals are are under attack. so it's it's hard not to be really pessimistic and when mm-hmm. we're talking about women a category that is like so huge like if the, you know it's like I I don't know I'll, I'll stop there
1: uh, I it, it it is it's 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 a tough tough a lot of tough ideas to get you, wrap your head around um one of the things that I've that comes to my immediately rises up in me is just the thought that this might be the last dying gasp, just a desperate attempt for a segment of the population, in other words, white, entitled males, to, to hold on to some power that they're losing. They can see they're losing it. They fear the loss of it. And they're going to extreme measures to try and reverse the trend. This may be just my own revulsion at the setting aside of a lot of uh dreams that i had as a young man growing up that things would be changed by my generation and right now i'm seeing it as my generation somewhat somewhat denying that right to others that we were born with and never had to earn and that we're trying to deny others the freedom the sense of belonging the sense of not having to really stretch too far to get what we wanted i don't know that and i'll stop now so that uh someone else might <laughs> disillusion me of this because it does keep me up at night
4: i just want to quickly add to michael michael i just looked at what you were saying and yeah there were, are only five women total in the 46 member chamber of the senate and they all three are republican, one democrat, one independent and they all walked in to and they were all wearing uh buttons that read elect more women. So it wasn't it wasn't protect our sexual and reproductive health. It was, you know, this is really a political an elections issue and you are making laws because, you know, of the 46 member chamber, there're only five of us that you're setting a 6 week ban that is completely completely against our experience of like what it means to to know and all of that so thanks michael for bringing it up
0: i know that in the recent tv interview they also mentioned that if there were three or four more women in their chamber they would have had control of the issue i don't know how that would be but they said that they were just short three or four more votes and yes clearly they were very united in addressing this issue, regardless of which party they belong to. And they were all operating from a sense of what I'll call public interest. I believe three or
3: four. Uh, Yeah. And, and, and to your point, uh, three or four more women in that particular body would have been able to allow them to sustain their filibuster. Those five women. And again, let's, let's point out that it's a bipartisan group of women.
0: Absolutely. With respect to, power and and the uh, white male dominance at this point, I, I am a believer in the fact that social equity comes from a more mixed and diverse legislative body. Having more women, having more minorities uh, in the respective legislatures, I think serves us all well. That's just my personal take. And I think that we would be far better for it. Well, well i can say
2: that we do have a much better mix in terms of diversity in the massachusetts legislature it's yes. not 50-50 Mm-mm. but uh you know it's it's very, you know tremendous progress has been made here in the commonwealth and uh i don't know if how many people realize but uh mara Healy was the first elected uh woman governor yep. in the history of the commonwealth of mm-hmm. massachusetts uh the lieutenant governor is uh, a woman. The treasurer is a woman. The attorney general is a woman. It's an it's an amazing group uh, of of females that run the uh, Massachusetts government and sit in some of the top positions uh, here. Um, but and don't forget,
3: the president of the Senate is a woman.
2: President of the Senate, absolutely. It's and the mayor of Boston. It's wild. Uh, So when we hear about these stories from outside the Commonwealth, it's somewhat foreign to me because I'm just not used to that type of uh, problem. Uh, You know, it's it's fascinating. And I hear it and I'm like, is that America or or is that some land land? Far, far away. And it, it actually is part of uh, part of the United States, frightening as it is. Um, but for all of our listeners who I assume are from Massachusetts, uh, uh, rest well, uh, we've uh, we've accomplished this uh, and we continue to improve.
4: We still do need to have a female president of the United States. That has never happened. And it has happened in a lot of faraway places, as you as yes. you say. Um, yes, indeed. And can I share some personal news? And, you know, people here know that I am very much an immigrant to the country. My parents still live in Greece. Uh, my mom is an epidemiologist like me and was very active during COVID. She was very big and she was just elected to the Greek parliament on Sunday. So she was oh wow.
1: Congratulations. 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 yes oh, Yay for yes, her. Yes.
4: Speaking of women, women in politics, and I'm very proud of her because she's 71, 72 and is. Oh, a young gal, my uh, age. Is, the last phase of her life is going to be serving in a political yeah. role. So I'm I'm very proud of her. That is wow. fantastic That's news. Great. The
2: Lino's family is on a roll <laughs> and uh, we love to see it. Uh I hope hopefully she'll come visit someday. Maybe we can get her Oh, actually, she can participate via Zoom. Oh, by Zoom be yeah, on the radio. guest on the show, yeah. yeah. Can we do that?
4: Happy to have her for sure. Yeah.
0: Excellent. That would be Excellent. great. One of the things just zooming back on the issue that we were talking about with respect to uh women's rights abortion and so on i i would ask the following questions is general health care a human right or is it a privilege um and starting with that question if we consider health care for all of us to be a fundamental human right it would seem to me that it would fall under federal constitution to guarantee that that human right for all uh, in the pursuit of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And so looking at it as a basic human right, that cannot be denied. That would be my argument for the fact that the notion of equal health care for all should be managed at the federal level. And the The great variability we see among the states with respect to access to health care, the legislation that governs health care, and as a subset of that obviously comes the contentious discussion about women's reproductive rights and abortion and so on. I find it fascinating that this issue keeps on getting pushed down to states' rights, and at the end of the day, I, I think that there are just so many things that are wrong with the argument. There needs to be some type of a, a reasoned federal position with respect to how health care is managed, how it's offered, how it is available, and that it needs to be uniform across all 50 states, U.S. territories, and possessions,
1: period. Chris, um, you want to weigh in on that? Uh, you seem to be uh, musing a bit uh, with regard to the National Health Organization.
5: Well, I was um, reflecting on one particular aspect of that as a constitutional right which is that if one declares it you know a constitutional right or or a necessity then there's the question of at what point do you draw the line uh certainly in many socialized medical systems such as the UK there are cost benefit studies to like how because obviously you you can provide medical intervention in a particular case infinitely right you can pretty much keep going doing interventions um, as long as the person retains a pulse um but that's going to be a be brutal a cost to society but if if the taxpayer is paying like at what point do you draw the line and so in socialized medicine systems you have um mechanisms usually where they'll determine is it worth it? so in the uk it's is this person going to enjoy if we do this operation another six months of quality of life and if the determination is no then that procedure will probably not be carried out where here you know you could make that choice if your compass mentis or your family can make that choice if you've given them proxy but um if the doctors are feeling a legal constitutional pressure that they have to keep going then You'll get a lot of um superfluous and um, you know, uh unproductive health interventions. So I don't know like how you'd have to come up with a mechanism to manage that yeah, I, well.
0: do, I I don't think it's a case of a- applying medicine to miraculous extremes. I think it's a case of equity that the argument that someone is at a point in their life where, the quality and quantity of life that remains uh, now has to be part of the consideration. If that consideration is equal to all citizens, then my argument is satisfied. So there has to be what we know as uh, a reasoned ceiling that is managed with the qualified information and knowledge of doctors who would be free to look at each citizen and in their best interest, try to do the right thing, whatever the right thing is. Mm. So I, I don't see it as being applying medicine to the extreme. I just see it as being federated to the point where every state provides quality medical care to the best practices of 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 the industry. Um, and sometimes those practices might well mean, okay, we've done all we can, we can't do any more reasonably. So I think that I don't have a quarrel with, you know, universal health care as it's applied in other countries. And I just see the disparity where you can cross a state line and suddenly be denied Mm. medical benefits that you would have. Massachusetts is kind of an oasis. Mm. Uh, We're far ahead of many states with respect to uh, access to medical insurance, access to quality care and so on. And I know that I have friends who moved out of the state, friends, by the way, who are in the medical profession, And I look at them and say, what were you thinking? (laughs) And they go, yeah, we know. Well, um, Go ahead, Michael.
3: Well, the other aspect of that is, and it's something that I've been pondering here for since the overturn of Roe v. Wade, the requirement, the ethical requirements of, of physicians to not only intervene and try to preserve and save one's life and then do no harm. Seems to me he's been thrown out the window when it comes to uh, women's health care, especially when there have been horror stories of, for example, I think this was in Texas where a woman had to sit out in her car because mm-hmm. the doctors said that they couldn't provide any uh, any service to her because it would have appeared as though they were aiding in an abortion. And she had to sit there until she became toxic basically on the verge of death before they could do anything. And I, I challenge that. I say that, and here's where does a doctor have an ethical standard that he or she has to abide by that says, I save your life regardless of what the politicians have put in place, but your life is at risk. So my first duty is to save your life, not to, Try to get a lawyer to determine: uh, Am I going to be liable uh, under the abortion law? And I think that's one of the other things that we're missing here.
0: Well, it's, it's- the Monday morning quarterbacking of a medical decision by legislators. That's you know, doctors are so exposed at this point to these laws that you know they could they could see something as being career ending.
3: Well, uh, yeah, I get that part, but. At the same time, which is more valuable individually? You're saying, Pete, that well, this could be career-ending, but at the same time, this could be the end of that person's life. True. Yeah, and And, and and where are those of us who are willing to tell that doctor, "Do your job"? We as citizens will protect you from overzealous extremist politicians. I have not heard that particular. Discussion or argument out there yet? So maybe we're the first to uh, uh, to start to throw that out.
1: Well, a a big aspect of this, of course, is that healthcare in this country is big business. It makes money. It makes a lot of money, and you've got corporations that are running uh, a vast majority of the hospitals and medical facilities and HMOs in this country, and they can indeed they wield a big hammer when it comes to what they will or will not allow you to do. And you know, you cross a line with one of these corporations and that could be the end that could very well be the end of your career, whether it was legal or not, they can end your career. So you have to keep that in mind. it's it's just it's a messy, messy business, just like being a human being is very messy. Everything seems to have gotten a lot messier lately.
0: Well, they're also the case of doctors and nurses and then professional flight, from states where it's just too onerous to practice given the current laws. And and I'd, I know I've spoken to some in the medical field who say, yeah, I'm headed for New York or I'm headed for Massachusetts from where I am. Um, and given that every state feels like they're experiencing a shortage of qualified professionals, those states that can provide a reasoned background of, of legislation for medical professionals to work in relative safety are the states that are going to see improvements in the quality of the healthcare because they'll be able to attract the best people. States who in the end make it too difficult to make major medical decisions or put doctors at risk, those states are going to see a gradual decline in the numbers and quality of healthcare professionals that are available to the public. You know, this this is going to have a very long term effect and it's going to see what hap. It's going to be interesting to see what happens across the South and Southeast, given all the recent changes in the legislature. And I got to think that somewhere in the mists of the future, this has to bubble back up to the profession, to the federal level for a final resolution because it's just getting out of hand.
1: That would seem to be the case. I think that might be a note to wrap up on today. Another more perfect union hour has flown by, and we do have to say goodbye until next week. Now, if you would like to weigh in on our discussions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. Or again, if you disagree, all the more reason to let us know. Now, you can also share or listen to this program on any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online at our website, wfpr.fm. So today for our guests, Dr. Natalia Linos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, our representative on Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy, always Peter J, our station manager, and my co-host, Chris Wilf. I'm Nick Remesong. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin
3: Public Radio.